My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. as we walk through this is we're going to land with one of the major prophets of the Bible, and that's the prophet Isaiah. And what we're going to realize as we jump into Isaiah chapter 6 this morning is that Isaiah received an incredibly hard assignment. In fact, it's harder to find in the Old Testament an assignment more difficult to be given to a prophet than Isaiah's. And what I'm hoping is you'll see maybe some of the hardship that you're facing because God is calling you to something that you're going to be able to identify with Isaiah and say, I know hardship as well. I know the task that God is calling me to. I know the path that God wants me to walk. I know the terrain is hard. I know the path is rocky, but I'm going to continue to walk because I have hope. Because Isaiah is going to get, like I said, a weighty assignment. Maybe one of the most difficult in all of the Bible, second to probably Jesus Christ himself, the God-man. But the prophet Isaiah is going to experience something that is incredibly hard and incredibly long. He's going to have an assignment that's decades long, and it's a very difficult assignment. So I want to invite you to maybe think about right now the assignment that's before you. And I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey. And I don't know where you are relationally with your spouse or with your family or with your friend group or maybe even at work. But you may right now be in a very hard season, in a very difficult season. And you know God's expectation. You know God's call. You know what you're supposed to do. You know what you ought to do. But doing what you ought and doing what you should just puts a burden on you that you're just fatigued. And maybe you've already said this to yourself this week. You said, you know what, I just want to give up. Like, I'm done. I'm through with this. Maybe some of you, even in this room, you've thought to yourself, maybe over the last several months, I can't honor my vow anymore. Right? I, I looked into her eyes, or I looked into his eyes, and I just said all of those words, but now I'm regretting them because this is so difficult. Maybe you're in that space where your communication is gone, your intimacy is cold, and you don't know how you could ever fulfill the vow that you made to love them in sickness and in health, in hardship and in times of prospering. 
and you feel like just giving up. Right? Maybe right now what's happening for you is you're taking care of children that are not yours. Maybe they're your grandchildren. You poured into your kids and you poured so much into them. You, you cried at the moments you were supposed to cry. You rejoiced at the moments you were supposed to rejoice. You read all the right books. You listened to all the right wisdom, the parental wisdom, all that guidance. You gave them all these great opportunities. But your kids have turned away from the path that you put them on. And now they've have kids of their own, but they've abandoned them. And now you got to step in. And now you're dealing with wounds that you didn't put there. You're dealing with hurts that you didn't put there. You're dealing with baggage and a mess that you didn't create, but now you got to step in and there's resentment and there's resistance. And you're to the point of like, I'm too old for this. I was planning early retirement not to jump back into parenthood. But you know that true and undefiled religion, as James, Jesus' brother, said, is to care for widows and to care for orphans. And you know what you're called to. You know what your heart is compelled to. But if you're being honest, you're just tired. And you just want to give up. Maybe it's a forgiveness issue. You know that God wants you to forgive others and God wants you to forgive yourself too. But maybe you've got some shame in your past some scars from your past. You've already gone to God and you've already confessed it and he's run to you and assured you of his mercy and he wants to forgive you, but you can't forgive yourself. And you just can't take on that assignment. You can't meet that call. You just can't forgive yourself. You can't look yourself in the mirror and have any sense of anything but shame because you made some mistakes in your past. Maybe you were unfaithful to your spouse or, or maybe you drove your granddaughter to an abortion clinic because you didn't want her life to be ruined. That's what you thought in that moment. And you took her to a place where they terminated that life. And you've confessed it. You try to walk through it. Maybe it's been years since that moment. But you can't embrace the mercy and forgiveness of God. You just can't do it. I don't know what your assignment is. But I know following the pathway that Jesus puts in front of us is not easy. There are rocks on that path. And it hurts. So how can we endure that? If God calls us to do something, how can we endure it? The prophet Isaiah is going to get a really, really, really hard assignment. But he's going to endure that assignment. And the reason he's going to find endurance is because of his reverence. What's going to allow him to run hard, to run long, to take on the fatigue, to give him stamina is he's going to have a high view of God. In fact, this is what I think we're going to see. This is our big idea for today. If you're going to write down anything, I want you to write this down. The big idea of today, the main idea of our message from Isaiah 6 is this. The length of our endurance is measured by the height of our faith. What we're going to see in Isaiah is his endurance is going to have to be long, incredibly lengthy. Miles and miles, years and years of a hard assignment. But the reason he can endure is because the height of his faith. We're going to see he is going to summit when it comes to a spiritual experience. He's going to get to a peak. He's going to get to a mountaintop. And that experience with God is what will grant him endurance. And that's the same thing that's true for you and me now. We can have endurance if our faith is high, if our vision is clear, if we dare to look up and see the splendor of the king who's in control. All right, let me show you this. Isaiah chapter 6. Let's start with verse 
1. Isaiah chapter 6, starting with verse 1. We're going to start with that kind of the height of faith. What's his experience? What's his encounter with God? Look at Isaiah chapter 6, starting with verse 1. It reads this. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. Now, this is important just timing-wise, what's going on in the life of Isaiah. The king has just died. He served in this king's court. He was the prophetic mouthpiece to this king. God's words came through Isaiah to the king to give him wisdom to know how to rule, to govern God's people with justice and with mercy. And things went pretty well. For 52 years, King Uzziah sat on the throne and he was a good king. He made one bad mistake at the end of his life, but it didn't sour his whole legacy. And so you got to think, if you're Isaiah, you're this prophet, you've served under this king, things have been good. Now that there's a leadership transition, there might be some anxiety. Isaiah's got to continue on, right? This isn't the beginning of Isaiah's career. We know that because we're in chapter 6, which means there's chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. He's already been a prophet. He's already served under the king. But now there's a transition. Now there's that anxious moment will the next king be a good king? Sadly, if you've read on, you realize, no, he's a terrible king, King Ahaz. But right now we know that Isaiah has got to deal with some anxiety in the midst of this transition. And he needs endurance. He needs encouragement. He needs to be able to to be energized to continue to do what God would have him to do. And that's the setting of this experience. He sees the Lord. And look at what he sees. It's Incredible. Isaiah chapter 6, starting with verse 1 again. It was in the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord, and he was seated on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were these mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And they were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord or is the Lord of heaven's army, and the whole earth is filled with his glory. And their voices shook the temple to its foundation, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Wow. Now that's an experience, right? You'd go back to that church, wouldn't you? I mean, that's incredible. This massive and majestic vision of God. Now, in my personal reading. I don't believe this is just a visionary state that he's in. I think he's having a vision in the solid temple. I think he's in in Solomon's temple. And the reason why, I think the language is plain in its description. It mentions foundation and temple, things shaking. I think he's in the physical temple of God. And as he's there, he sees these giant creatures called seraphim, which means burning ones in the Hebrew. These burning ones are flying around a throne. And these creatures are so incredibly massive that the voice in their song shakes the foundation of a temple. I mean, just think about how massive that volume is. You complain about how loud our service songs are. Imagine these ones, right? Have you ever been, you know, just at home? Maybe you're trying to put the babies down, right? Nap time, and nap time is important. Keep the schedule. If you ruin the schedule, everything is chaos, I'm speaking from personal experience with four babies. Okay, don't disrupt nap time. That's important. But then you have this man who really loves his music, right? And he wants to share it with the world. So he drives down your street, 
bumping his subwoofer that rattles his window, rattles his trunk, and shakes your windows, right? And you, being a wonderful Christian, pray for him as he passes. You're like, this is way too specific. (laughs) What what does this mean? Right? But you know, when, when the volume is loud, man, it could rattle a window. Imagine the subwoofer you would need to shake the foundation under your feet. That's how loud these things are. I mean, that is some heavy metal right there. Right? That's some deep singing right there. How terrifying would that be? These creatures must be massive. These burning ones singing their song that shakes the foundation. And even these sinless, massive spiritual creatures hide from God. Isn't that interesting? They've never sinned. They're not morally impure. And yet these spiritual giant creatures hide their eyes from God. Because even as majestic and glorious as they are, they pale in comparison to the one that sits on the throne. They can't even look at him because they would be destroyed. Moses is told in Exodus chapter 19, if God were to display his glory, display his holiness unencumbered, that it would kill a man. It shows us the dynamic nature of God's holiness. It's not static. You can't ziplock it, put it away in a compartment. No, it's dynamic. There's a sense of heat to it. And the idea is that if these creatures, being as massive as they are, and majestic as they are, sinless as they are, they even have to cower at the splendor of the sovereign king on the throne. Incredible. It says they cover their feet. I think that's a symbol of humility. What they're saying is we don't determine the direction of our path. God does, right? They just totally have submitted to the sovereign. And then they sing their song, their thunderous song. And their song is holy, holy, holy. Now, it's not because the record, you know, the needle skipped on the record. that It's repeating. That's not what's going on here. See, in the Hebrew language, what you would do to increase the quality of something is you would either repeat the noun or repeat the adjective. So an example would be like in 2 Kings, the Hebrew uh, is translated in English as pure gold, but the Hebrew is actually gold, gold. And that's the idea of how they would increase the quantity of something or the quality of something. Well, nowhere in the Hebrew Bible is anything ever increased in quality to the third power. Holy Holy, holy. They're creating a a superlative statement. You can't go beyond it. It's not that these angels or these seraphim, these burning ones, are just saying God is holier. What they're saying is he is the only holyist. He's completely unique. Infinitely other. There is nothing like him. You can't even put something near him and draw a comparison. Drawing comparison does not work. He's unique. He is rare. Infinitely and utterly set apart from anything in all of creation. What a summit. Right? I mean, he is at the top of the mountain right now. And what we're going to see is he's going to come crashing down into the deep, dark crater of self-awareness. Look at what our prophet, the spiritual hero in the Old Testament, look what he says. 
He's blindsided by the holiness and the glory of God. He has a true image of who God is. And then look what he says. I'll tell you, this is exactly what I feel like I would say. Look at verse 5. Then I said, it's all over. It's all over. I'm done. I get scared by horses. You can laugh at that. That's fine. It's, you know, you can laugh at my pain. That's okay. I do. Like, I'm afraid of massive creatures. I am. If I'm out hiking and I see a coyote, I just, like, give up. I'm like, kids, run. Take it. Like, just right there, just bite. <laughs> like, it's true. I get intimidated by big creatures. I'm a little guy. It's just how it is. Right? I, I remember my uh, sister uh, used to work at, uh, at UC Davis in the equestrian kind of department. And she would work with these giant thoroughbreds that used to run like the Kentucky Derby. And so she would do different tests and everything on, on them. And one of those tests was they would put them on this treadmill. Think about a thoroughbred on a treadmill. It's insane. The treadmill is humongous, right? And so I had the great idea to bring my little kids into that kind of space. So we stood there. She strapped the horse up, got that thing to I don't know how fast, but every muscle and vein in that horse was bulging out as this thing's in full gallop. And at one point, every single hoof is off the ground. It's incredible. And this thing is thundering. I mean, just boom, ba-doom, ba-doom. It is scary. And I remember like, it was a bad dad moment. Like my kids are right here. I'm like, you know, just in case something happens, I need a shield, <laughs> right? No, like, I get intimidated. Imagine seeing those creatures. And yeah, when, when a hoof thunders and hits the ground, I tell you what, it's incredible. You feel it here. But imagine a sound that shakes your feet. Right? That's intimidating. Isaiah says, it's over. <laughs> I'm done time to play possum. Look what he continues to say. It's over. I'm doomed for I'm a sinful man and I have filthy lips and I live among a people with filthy lips. So interesting. Filthy lips. If anybody's got holy lips, wouldn't it be the prophet? I mean, this is his skill. This is his strength. This is what he's known for. It's his, it's his career. And yet even in his strength, even in his skill, he finds sin. I'm a man of unclean lips. I think what's happening here is very similar to what we experience in the lesson we learn when we stare at the sun. Right, we can be really impressed as we kind of walk on a hike and we take in all these beautiful, vibrant colors of the flowers and the bushes and those different things. And, and it's pretty remarkable what these eyes can do and the spectrum of colors that we can take in and identify, the nuances of. It's incredible. And, and beyond that, the, the distances that we can gauge, e- even with modern invention, Innovation, there's the word, innovation with, with a lens, a camera lens, it's pretty impressive what we're able to do with optics, but the eye still impresses, right? But when you look up at the sun, what happens? You squint. Why? Because as efficient as this is, it can't take in the brilliance of that light. It's just too bright. That's what's happening to Isaiah spiritually. He's not impressed with himself anymore. He looks in the mirror and says, well, I'm better than that guy and that guy and that guy and that guy. But when I look up, I'm done done. 
even my skill, even my strength, what I pride myself on, what I'm applauded for, there's still sin in there. You know, I remember as a junior high pastor, I was pretty impressed with my dodgeball skill. I mean, I'm going to tell you right now, no sixth grade girl group has ever defeated me. I don't care if there's 30 of them, okay? Is one's laughing because she was in my youth group when she was that age, right? I undefeated. And I'll be honest, and I know pastors are humble. Thank you for acknowledging that, right? But I felt pretty good. You know, they would get in there and they would, oh, and I would just come in sidearm, bam, just like, just take them all out, man. It was super fun. And I felt pretty, pretty good about myself. I know you're thinking so highly of me right now. You're like, we're going to go visit that other church that you found online. This guy's crazy, right? But then I remember moving up to high school ministry and there happened to be a guy who was the starting pitcher for the high school baseball team who could throw a fastball in the 90s. And then that guy hit me with a dodgeball. And I could smell colors for a week. He hit me so hard. I was tasting blood for a month. I mean, my ear was ringing for hours. I was no longer impressed with myself. This is what's happening to Isaiah. He felt pretty good. And then he looked up. And that's dangerous. And that's dangerous. And he came from that summit straight down into the deep, dark crater of self-awareness. But that's not where God left him. And that's not where God leaves you. Because look at what happens. Look what happens. Look what shows up. This amazing encounter continues. Look in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. We've got heat now. And you would think a burning coal, this white hot coal from what probably is a reference to the burnt offering in the court of the temple where substitutionary sacrifice would be made. That's the idea here. You would sacrifice an animal and you'd burn it and the coals would just ignite the entire animal. So these are hot coals. You think immediately if this thing touches Isaiah, he's going to be wounded. But he's not. He's healed. And this is the beauty of what happens at that altar. This is the beauty of what happens in sacrifice. Is sacrifice is painful, but it's also relieving. It's painful, but there's also hope. And why is that? Because at the altar, the one who experiences pain is not the one doing the sacrifice, but rather the animal that was sacrificed, the substitute. The Israelites were used to confess their, their, their sin and they would put it uh, as a symbol, put their hand on the animal and they would confess their sin. And it was like there was a concrete reality to their sin. It would come off of them almost like dirt onto that animal and then they would sacrifice that animal. So pain happened just not to me, not to the one sacrificing. So there's pain and there's hope and sacrifice. What a wonderful picture of the cross of Jesus Christ. There is pain but hope. And Isaiah experiences the hope of the healing provided by this burning coal. Look at what is told to him by the burning one, the seraphim. The one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in verse 6. And he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, see this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. The very thing he confessed is now taken away. What an experience, right? 
I mean, he gets to the summit and sees God in all of his splendor. And then he crash lands into that crater of self-awareness. But then God meets him with mercy in that moment, forgives him of his sin. And what does that do to Isaiah? It makes him eager to take on any assignment. This is the most remarkable part, I think, of our turn here. We get to the height of his faith. Remember, the big idea was that the the length of our endurance is measured by the height of our faith. Well, the height of his faith is at an elevation that, that, that none of us will probably ever experience. And the length of endurance he's going to need is going to is going to be very evident very clearly. But right now he's eager. He said, I've seen God. I've been forgiven. I've been confronted with holiness and forgiveness at the same time. And then God asks a question. And the question is not even addressed to Isaiah. Here's the remarkable part. Isaiah has been kind of off in the corner seeing this vision. He's never heard anything yet from the one that's on the throne. He just hears the thundering song of the seraphim. But now he's been forgiven and it's as if he gets closer because now he hears a conversation happening in the throne, on the throne. And he realizes there's a plurality on that throne. I think that's the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they're talking amongst themselves. And it's like Isaiah gets to join in or hear, eavesdrop, if you will, on the Trinity talking. Isn't that crazy? The intimacy that's now changed. He's been so far back in his encounter with the transcendent. And now he's right there in intimate proximity with the holy, holy, holy triune God. And look at what he hears. Look what the Trinity is saying. Then I heard the Lord asking, whom shall I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? He's not even talking to Isaiah. Isaiah is not directly addressed. Why is that? I think it's because he doesn't need to be coerced. This guy is eager. Right? He's like, you were like in fourth grade and you were good at math, right? And the teacher would say, who knows what this divided by this is? And before they even got to who knows it, you were like, who? Ooh, I want to show I'm smart. Right? Anybody in the room do that? You were all in the back of the class, right? Shooting spitballs at the back of kids like me. Appreciate that. Right, But I remember if I knew something, in the, I'm ready to go. This is exactly the eagerness that Isaiah has. He overhears the Trinity talking. He doesn't need to be asked. Look what he says. Then I heard the Lord ask him in verse 8, Whom shall I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? Isaiah says, Here I am. Send me. What a terrible idea. You just wrote God a blank check. Notice how he doesn't know anything yet. Right? Does he know the assignment? No. He doesn't know how long it is. He doesn't really know where it is. He doesn't know who it is or who it's to. He knows who go to God's people, but but who? The poor? The rich? The king? He knows nothing. He doesn't know if it's going to be hard or going to be easy. He's completely unaware, but he doesn't care. Why? Because he saw God. And it doesn't matter. I've been forgiven by the majestic, holy, holy, holy God of the universe. Whatever he asks, I'm for it. In fact, before he asks, here God, there's a blank check on my life. Put whatever numbers you'd like. What a dangerous thing. But this is what happens when we see God. This is what happens when we encounter reverence. 
This is what happens when we encounter God's holiness. This is what happens when we embrace the forgiveness provided for us at the cross. We become reckless with our life. What looks like a waste, what looks like a bad investment, what looks wrong, what looks dangerous, becomes a delight. That's what's happening here. And look at his assignment coming. And place yourself, whatever your assignment is. I may have not hit it in the beginning of the sermon. I may not have hit it in the beginning of the message. But you know the assignment that you have before you. You know what God is calling you to. And you know how high it is. And maybe you've tried to turn it down, but you know exactly what God wants you to do. You know exactly what love requires in this moment of you. You know what the expectations are. You know it's time to put down the habit. You know it's time to be the first one to embrace forgiveness. You know that you're the one who needs to start reconciliation with the offenses that have happened in your past. You know you need to step up where others would not step up. You know you need to fill the gap that somebody else should have filled, but they didn't. You know you need to step in to those moments to take initiative, to take risks, to take it on, to be reckless, to reinvent what retirement looks like, to reinvent what home looks like, to reinvent whatever your life looks like. You know it's time to disrupt your rhythm. You know the assignment that's before you. But when you see God, you're eager to embrace it. And look at the assignment that Isaiah is given and compare compare it to the assignment and the fatigue that maybe you're feeling right now. Because I think what you'll find is you'll find empathy here. You'll see that the assignment you have is very, maybe similar to the assignment that he has. It's not easy. It's hard. Look how hard it is. Look at what God describes Isaiah is to do. A prophet, and I'm just going to say by personal confession, as someone who, 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 in a sense, part of his job is to speak for a living, everybody who speaks on a stage loves applause and loves to be admired and loves to, to receive accolades and loves to, uh, to get cheers and amens and all those things. We all love those things. Nobody likes to get booed. Don't boo me. First service booed me. Just kidding, they didn't. They're awesome people, okay? Not as good as you, but they're awesome. But we all love, right, to get that recognition, to be applauded, to receive reward, to get on stage and hold it up and have a speech, right? We all like that part. Isaiah won't get that. He won't get that for decades, right? Look at his assignment. And he said, yes, go. I'm in verse 9. Say this to the people. Let's just, just walk through this. This is the assignment. Hear this out. This is what Isaiah is supposed to say. Listen carefully. He's going to be a very clear prophet, incredibly clear prophet. In fact, Isaiah chapter 28, those who hear Isaiah say that he's so incredibly simple, they find his messages patronizing. Like an elementary school teacher, they feel like his clarity is so clear that they're, they're, he's insulting their intelligence. He's going to speak with clarity. He's going to speak, but it won't persuade or convict. Look what it says. Listen carefully, but do not understand. Watch closely, but learn nothing. These are the commands given to Isaiah. Harden the hearts of these people. Plug their ears. Shut their eyes. That way they will not see with their eyes, nor hear with their ears, nor understand with their hearts, and turn to me to find, or turn to me for healing. What? What do you do with that? What a terrible assignment. Now, this isn't unique. If you read through the Bible it's with us so far, you're going to see that this is very similar to what happened with Moses and his ministry really to Pharaoh. 
But this passage, this very same passage will be picked up in the New Testament to describe the ministry of Jesus Christ, to describe the ministry of Paul. This is not uncommon. Now it's very confusing. What is he, what is he asked to do here? Speak with clarity in a way that actually hardens the audience you're listening to. Now we have to remember where we're at, right? We're in Isaiah chapter 6, not Isaiah chapter 1. There's been 1, 2, 3, 4, Five, got that right. Right, all those chapters, and what we've seen in all those chapters is God has been calling his people, hey, you gotta change. You gotta turn around. You gotta follow me. Stop moving away from my design. Under my design, you'll be blessed. Stop running away from it. You're only gonna experience brokenness. Come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. For five chapters, which is probably an extensive ministry, and even people before, there's been this constant pull back. But it's reached a point, and God's patience now is rescinded. Now, I know that sounds odd, but God does not have infinite patience. That's not the God of the Bible. His patience doesn't go on forever with no judgment. There is judgment, there's an end time, there's a reconciliation of all things, there's a time to call things to account. His patience, yes, is more abundance than, than, uh, than any of ours. And he's described, when he describes himself, he describes himself as a, a God full of compassion and loving kindness and long-suffering. That's true. He's incredibly patient. It, it, his patience is deeper than any ocean that we know of. But it's not forever. There is a time where he says, fine, I'll give you what you want. If you want to reject me, then okay. Then okay. We saw this with Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh and the very first encounter is described that as Moses speaks the words of God to Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardens his heart. And you remember this as you read with us in the very beginning in the book of Exodus. What happens is there's a turn where no longer is it just Pharaoh hardening his heart. It now changes and God hardens his heart. What do we do with that? See, here's the kind of double-edged sword of the message of God. The double-edged sword of the message of God is, yes, the message of God can be like a, a summit, like a mountain. It, it, it can be an instrument of encouragement for you to grow in your relationship with God, for you to get to a point where you have intimacy with God. But if we had reject the mountain of those messages that have been given to us, we're then now buried under that same mountain. It's almost like what was meant to be a catalyst and an encouragement to our faith now becomes evidence against us because the more we hear, the more we know, the more we're accountable for at judgment. It's as if every message we heard and rejected and rejected and rejected and rejected become exhibit A, B, C, and D when it comes to the final judgment of God. That's what's happening right here for Isaiah. Isaiah, here's your assignment. My people have rejected me, rejected me, rejected me, and now I'm pulling away. And you'll speak clear, but now every message, they'll just respond with a hard heart and their judgment will just increase. What a terrible assignment. And it's not just for a season. Look what Isaiah says. This would be my response. Verse 11. Then I said, Lord, how long will this go on? 
I don't like this. And I can picture Isaiah saying, oh, I'm sorry, I, I picked number two from the ticket. This must be the assignment for a guy number one. I was on the wrong vision, right? Got into the wrong temple there for a moment. No, he understands. He now knows he's going to have to obey with a very heavy heart. He knows the emotional weight of it. And he says, how long will this go on? Now listen to this. And he replied, until their towns are empty and their houses are deserted and the whole country is a wasteland until the Lord has sent everyone away and the entire land of Israel is deserted. Even, or sorry, if even a tenth a remnant survive, it will be invaded again and burned. What? Decades, this man would have this ministry. Now, he had some bright moments. People did respond positively. King Hezekiah later in uh, chapters 30 of uh, the book of Isaiah. But the majority of his life was being faithful in a season of hardship. But he endured in that assignment, a very hard assignment. Why? How could he do that? Because he had a high view of God. The length of his endurance was measured by the height of his faith. So the reason he can endure, the reason he can persist, the reason he can work through that pain, the reason he can make it that long doing that work for decades is because he saw God. And that's the same hope for you, no matter how hard your assignment is. Right? No matter how hard it is to get over the offense of your past, Somebody deeply wounded you and affected you in such a way that has sent you to therapy for years and you still feel like you can't get your head above water. Right? You've been so traumatized that even intimacy now is something that is difficult. You've been hurt. You've been wounded. Right? But you know the amazing calling that God places on you to have a posture of forgiveness even to the person who offended you that deeply. It doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense that you would ever do that. That somebody that would wound you at the core of who you are would shake and rock your identity and your worth and your value. It'd keep you from hugs. It'd keep you from touches. Right? Those things. Somebody who did that to you. How could you ever, ever forgive them? You look up. You look up and you see the one who forgave you of every offense. You see the one who was wounded for you when you look up. When you look up, you are amazed by his holiness, but also his mercy. He bled for you. He died for you. He took every offense that you ever did in your life, your thought life, in your motives, in your hands, whatever you did, he forgave you. And it's only by looking up that you could ever muster any strength to forgive anybody. Maybe you feel, you know what, Paul, I, I can't endure this marriage anymore. I can't do this anymore. This is just a burden. Communication is gone. Intimacy is cold. I can't even look at them anymore. We're just near each other. We're roommates. We don't eat together. We don't laugh together. We don't cry together. We can't even watch commercials together. Right? There's nothing there. How can I endure in a relationship that is this shallow and gone? Look up. And see the God who has been faithful to you for so long. Even when you ran away from him. Even when you abused his name. Even when you intentionally tried to break his heart. 
he was still there for you. Look up. Look up. See the beauty of God and the power of God and the forgiveness of God and you can endure any assignment. You'll write God a blank check and you say, God, whatever you would have for me, I'll do it. Whatever it costs me, I'll do it. Because I'm loved by the Holy One and forgiven. I'll, I'll go through any hardship, any trial, any pain, no matter how hard, I'll follow the path, whatever you call me to. I'm so excited that we have a couple in our church, Jonathan and Kendra, and they are taking on a very hard assignment. They're growing, going to a region of the world, southeastern Europe, a, a country in former Yugoslavia, and they're going there, and you know what the percentage of Christians are in that country? A quarter of 1%. Quarter of 1%. Isn't their soil more fertile? Isn't there a ground more ripe for harvest? Isn't there an easier assignment to take on? Sure there is. Why would they go? Because they looked up. They looked up, and their high view of God is what will grant them great endurance. Jonathan, tell us kind of how that, how did that start for you, that call you feel to be a missionary? How did that start for you? Well, it starts actually with uh, Isaiah 6, 8. Um, I was on a mission trip in Haiti when I was 19, about 11 years ago, and uh, I'm reading Isaiah, and there I land in Isaiah 6. God just impressed on my heart, you know, who's going to go for us for the message we have for the people? Hmm. Hmm. And here I am, send me. 45 minutes later, I accepted the call, and here wow. I am now. Wow, that's amazing. Kendra, how about for you? It started back when I was in high school. Um, I knew that I wanted to work or study overseas and help people. Um, before I even knew what missions was, God was moving in my heart. Wow. And very similar to the Isaiah question, Isaiah asked, how long? How, do you, how long do you see this being a part of your journey? Well, um, we think of it with an open hand. So wherever God wants us for as long as he wants us to. So mm -hmm. our first term, you could call it that, uh, will be two years. Very awesome. And how can we support you? How, how can we help you as you journey out into this assignment? Well, people can sign up for our newsletter. They can join our prayer team. And they can also become monthly financial partners. Very cool. And I want to tell you right up front, we're so excited not only about what God is doing here at Sunrise to lift people and launch people out into the mission field. We're so incredibly excited for that. But we are not a, just a church who sends. We're a church that supports. That's what part of sending means. And we support them as a church financially. There are many partners here uh, at Sunrise that are supporting them as well. There's a gap, and I just want you to be mindful of this. I think you would want to know this. Where are they, Paul? What's the gap? Right now, the gap is about 22%. There are 78% funded and they need to get to uh, 100% in 100 hours. So they have four days, June 30th is the kind of the cutoff time. And so I wanna encourage you that maybe what God is speaking to you and to your heart, if you're sensitive to it, it's different. Maybe it's not send me, but maybe it's I'll support the one who was sent, the one who we're sending. And so they're gonna have a, a table right there outside in the fellowship or in the 
lobby area. You'll see a flag there of the country that they're going to. Go there. They've got some great candy from the region. This candy right here doesn't even have a vowel, and I don't know how to pronounce it, but I'm sure it's (laughs) sweet. Okay, so take the kids there. Let them hear some of the stories, and you need to come and hear the stories. I got much more than what we gave you right now. The stories are rich. God using even dreams to move them out in that direction, but please, son, Rice family, think about how to financially support them. We're about $1,500 a month away from being fully supported. So please prayerfully consider, is God calling you? Who will support? Are you hearing that? And are you eager to say, I will? Here I am, Lord. Send me, right? Send them and let me be a part of it. Church family, what I want you to do is I want you to stand. We're going to kind of officially commission them out. You're going to hear from them as they continue on in their journey. We're going to be connected to them because we support them, what they're doing. But what I want you to do is just a symbol of agreeing that we are commissioning this wonderful couple out into southeastern Europe. I want you to extend your hand towards the stage just as a symbol that we are commissioning them together as a church. Join me in prayer. Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you that we've, been, we've interacted your glory. We've, we've been engaged with your holiness. We see the bright brilliance of who you are and we are put back and we step back and say, we are sinful. We are a people of filthy lips and filthy hearts and filthy minds. And yet you don't run from us, but you engage us with your mercy. Uh, Father, you, you swoop down just with Isaiah and you, you put that coal on his lips. You forgive us. And Father, we want the message that we heard. Somebody was sent to us. Everybody in this room, somebody was sent to us that gave us the gospel message. And right now, we are returning that. We are continuing that on. We're moving that forward. We are sending this couple. And I pray you'll be with Jonathan, that you be with Kendra. Father, that you would give them such a high view of who you are, that it would compel them and drive them to endure whatever hardship they're going to face. And we know the assignment is difficult, but Father, we know you're worth it. Christ, we know you're worth it. And so I pray here as a church, we agree that we're sending, we're supporting, we're praying, and we pray, Father, you move us as you move this wonderful couple. And to Christ's name I prayed. And the church said, amen. Thank you guys.